0: This segment of the podcast is sponsored by Traveling Knees Experiences, here to help you create new memories one experience at a time. When you're comfortable and ready to travel again, contact Traveling Knees Experiences at travelingkneesexperiences.com. That's the word traveling, N-E-S-E, experiences.com. They are ready to create your next memorable experience.
1: hi Ryan also good to hear this this interesting story from Jermaine it's been truly a learning experience for us as Caribbean parents our children they have chosen the non-traditional career path and it's not been easy for us to accept so I understand spoke so much for many black men were denied the opportunity to explore and build on their own inner passion right now i'm thinking of a young man who is so angry and just has gotten off track because two things he wanted to do in life was not good enough for his family to accept first he wanted to do performing arts and they said no and then he wanted to join the navy and they said no so you know he barely completed high school, struggled through one year of college, and then he has dropped out, and still searching to find himself and to find a place in society. Despite all of this, is despite him growing up in the church. So I I am so thankful that you had the opportunity to talk to Jermaine and to share his story. I I know that it will give hope to many young black men and boys inside the church and in the wider community. I just want to say congratulations to you on this podcast, to keep uh, informing our community and, you know, as we just try to deal with our black children and to help them on the path that God wants for them. I thank you so much for this interview. And Jermaine, I wish you all the best as you continue to grow.
0: Thank you for joining me for episode 31 of the Water Word podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Sharp. Your engagement amplifies what happened during the interview. I'm always amazed by the feedback because it brings something out that I understood, but it also highlights some things that I've forgotten about because I don't always go back and listen to the interviews. And I thank you for your engagement. It inspires me and it inspires others as well. I was reflecting this past week on mentoring. And one of the things I discovered is that I still remember important words said to me. One that stands out notably is uh, Dr. June Smith. She was with us at a family event. My family had a Christmas event. She was there. And she affirmed me publicly. I was in high school struggling with my grades, and she said before everyone, Ryan, we love you, we believe in you, you're going to do great things. And those words still inspire me to this day. And that's why I'm excited about my guest. His journey highlights the importance of having older people believe in you. And I think we will learn that We can inspire young people in the same way. We don't have to fix them. And my wife, Christine, confirmed that for me. We don't have to fix them. We just have to be there for them, support them, and be their champions because they're looking for heroes. And what I want our young ones to know especially, you'll be inspired by Mr. Brian Melford's story. He's my guest. You'll learn more about him, his work as an organizer, his involvement with the city council as uh, assistant to city councilman Andy King, uh, budget director, organizer, community-oriented, very positive young man, you learn the importance mentoring had in his life. But he has something significant to say about those of us who don't have mentors. And I believe that will be one of the great takeaways as well. I believe you'll enjoy this interview. The world needs you. And I'm hoping that even if you don't have a mentor, you'll know that the possibilities still exist that you can do great things with your resilience, with your perseverance, with your stick-to-itiveness. The sky is still the limit. Join me in welcoming my guest, Brian Melford, to the Waterwork Podcast.
2: Good evening. Good evening. Good day, Brother Sean.
0: Brian, thanks for coming on, man. If you could tell listeners
2: a little bit about your family. So good evening, everyone. My name is Brian Melford. Um, pray that you're having a blessed day when you listen to this podcast and pray that all is well in your life. Um, so I was blessed to be born to uh, Joan and Vincent Melford from the beautiful island of Jamaica. Um, my mom is from Tivoli Gardens. My father's from Red Hills. Um, growing up, life was actually great for them and and they wanted to to also see the world so so they said you know what foreign is where we're going to we're going to take our next step and not long after coming young melford hit the scene and and of course it gave me an opportunity to not only learn america with them but just learn about life from parents that kind of had the greatest kind of childhood growing up in jamaica from what they've told me is like growing up nowhere else and and you see it in the quality of people that Jamaica produces, you notice that there's a different level of of, of, of of greatness that comes from our people. As small as Jamaica is, you name some of the best things in the world and it's a Jamaican doing it or, or the child of a Jamaican or the grandchild of a Jamaican. The fastest people on the planet right now are Jamaicans. So there's something in the water and I'm glad that I was born of that, that branch. Um, when they got here, the neighborhood that they came to was the Northeast Bronx, where I live now, in the 12th District. And, and a lot of Caribbeans made their way here first. Either you went to Brooklyn or you come to the Bronx. And for us, growing up here wasn't too different from what it would have been like growing up in Jamaica. Of course, things are very different going into Midtown or getting on the trains on the buses and the politics of the neighborhood. But just the cultural element here was different. And when you ask people that grew up in that era of the early 90s, the, the late 80s, it was like Little Kingston, right on White Plains Road, right on Boston Road. Over here was our community. We had our own stores, our own markets. You wanted to buy aki, you can go to the store and buy aki. Tell me where in Midtown I could go buy a tin of aki right now or a tin of bully beef. Certain things you just found here like no other. And it was like being home for the people that were here because this was the home. So we had to make it home and had to bring our stores here. Um, I went to schools here in the neighborhood, Um, but of course, having Caribbean parents, I did school different than some of my peers. My parents were very hard on me growing up because they knew the value of education. And of course, they they were privileged to go to good primary schools back home, but they still wanted me to kind of grow up like I didn't have. And that's not a bad thing because it it made me more humble. It made me work harder for the things that I did want to get. And it kind of instilled in me that no matter what people are doing, I still got to do what I got to do. And I think that is what I carry into my adult life now of the world can be on fire. But if my job is to put out the fire, of course, I'm going to do my job to the best of my ability and get it done. Because excuses don't get it done. Getting it done gets it done. You have other siblings? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I have a brother that's um, 15 and then I have a sister that's 11. So I was the only child for a good long time but I was also trying to be a role model at home to them. So my, my little brother was a part of my youth program for a while. And then my sister, she has a, a whole list of hobbies. She's a print model and a runway model. So she has an opportunity to kind of be confident in her own skin. And also she has a, a dance group that she's a part of. So I mean, all my siblings are doing something positive. And of course, not all of them are on the same path that I'm on, but I still feel like they kind of watched how I grew up and and said, you know what, whatever I'm gonna do, I'm gonna do it a certain way. Were your parents strict? To be honest with you, they weren't. And and I'm glad that they weren't, but they honestly didn't even need to be. I feel like the way that I kind of watched them exist kind of gave me the template on how I should carry myself. So nine times out of 10, you know, some kids, you'll see how they get treated by their parents and then you'll see how they respond to certain things. And then you think about, well, you know, I could never do something like that in a Miami But then, You realize that because of the way that they were brought up, that's the dynamic that they exist. And so sometimes you can't even get mad at some of the behaviors we see in our peers or in some of the kids that we see because you kind of got to look at what kind of stock they come from. And that's not a bad thing sometimes. Sometimes kids have to see, you know, you may think that your life is hard for A, B, and C reason until you look across the way. And and some of these kids grow up thinking that, oh, you know, the kids on TV get to go to parties and this and that, and they get to go to sleepovers and this. I could never tell my mother, I said, I don't want to sleep in my bed. I want to go sleep in somebody else's bed, in somebody else's house. they look at me and say, what's wrong with your bed? We work hard to give you a place to sleep and food on the table. I couldn't tell my mother, say, I, oh, I don't want to eat um, um, kidney and dumpling. I want to eat um, pancakes and waffle every day. We just work fundamentally different, and that wasn't a bad thing. I feel like that kind of gave me a template to kind of guide me. And then, even outside of that, just how people talk to their parents, talk to elders in their communities. I think that watching how they did it, they didn't really have to tell me what to do in observation of how they did it. I just knew, yes, ma'am, yes, sir, yes, father, yes, mother, yes, granny, yes, grandfather, you, you deal with your elders differently. And I carried all of that into how I do my job. When I see the seniors in the senior center, yes, ma'am, how may I assist thee? How may I help you? I'm here to help. Do you need anything? And, and you see kids today, and they'll be sitting on the train. Perfect example. This kid's sitting on the train. Sister walks in with her shopping cart, groceries in the shopping cart. There's no seats. The little kid will be sitting down, carrying on, and the senior standing up the way I was growing, brought up, ma'am, would you like to sit down? Oh, do you need Do you need any help? If I see a sister carrying a stroller up the steps, do you need any help with the stroller? Of course, the way things are now, that may not be the most uh, common thing, but that's still how I was brought up. So of course, I'm still going to carry those behaviors into how I exist now. I've seen a young brother running through a door and the girl right behind him, the young man didn't stop and turn around and hold the door. But me now, oh, I got to hold the door, make sure she gets through safe, make sure she's good. If I'm walking with an umbrella, somebody's walking with no umbrella, hey, you want to send them my umbrella for two seconds? You're waiting for the bus. You're walking into a store. Little, little things like that kind of go a long way. And, and it's not like somebody said, oh, Brian, you have to hold the door for them. Oh, Brian, you have to, you have to do this. You have to do that. It's just observed behaviors that I saw from my parents that kind of gave me a different kind of existence than some of the peers around me. Not saying that all of the people, kids that because a lot of kids have them, but certain things you just don't get taught. Some things you just observe and do. How did you avoid the distractions that young people are typically faced with? To so be totally honest with you and don't tell nobody, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't avoid them. If anything, some of them I... I fully embraced because some experience you got to experience. Of course, I'm not jumping on no landmines and I'm not touching no hot stoves. But of course, I was still a young man, still a young person. I still have a social life. So some things I still engaged in and partook in. But I knew that the goals that I have were a little bit bigger than me. So I can't necessarily lollygag or kind of waste certain time like other people can. Of course, I still have hobbies. Uh, You may know one of them, two of them. I learned about some things, learned how to play an instrument, got to travel, see some of the world. But I knew that what, what's next for me, I can't kind of mess up with certain behaviors and certain activities. So you served in different capacities with um, Mr. King.
0: And it sounds to me, based on your testimony, like a meeting that changed your life. You're meeting him and his willingness to mentor you
2: made all the difference in the world. Um. When I got to high school now, uh, I joined a youth program called the Bronx Youth Empowerment Program. A brother in my church actually introduced me to the founder of the program, who is is Council member Andy King. And that was like my first taste of community service outside of church. Cause I was a church boy growing up. I went to Bronx Miracle Gospel Tabernacle Word of Faith Ministries under Rabbi Keith Elijah Thompson. And, and we did a lot of plays in house. We did a lot of service in the church but the Bronx Youth Empowerment Program was that youth program in the community now that kind of introduced me to what's going on outside of the church. Um, And it also kind of gave me that first taste of what local politics looked like in the community. Um, Went to college, I went to John Jay College um, and was volunteering in the community every chance I got, taking advantage of different free workshops. And what ends up happening, a lot of people in the neighborhood, at least in my age when I was 16, 17, 18, we're not trying to do free programs. Everybody was trying to get a job. People wanted to work at clothing stores. People wanted to work at sneaker stores. But I knew the value of that education and sometimes just being in the room. So a lot of different opportunities I got is not because I was the smartest person or or the person that was, was related to somebody. I just went and participated in certain things. So people looked out for me, which was a major blessing considering my, my, my father wasn't going to any community board meetings. Of course, he had to work to take care of his family my mom worked also so it was it wasn't like my parents were some super involved community people but i saw the value of what being involved in the community could do so i kind of stepped up in that regard to be that person in my family and of course if something was going on i keep them aware of what was going on and literally that's how it should be in communities like ours not all of us can go to every meeting but if one of us goes to every other meeting we can kind of share that information now and we're all on the same page if something's given away, or if there's a scholarship opportunity, there's a grant opportunity, we we can keep that collective resource amongst ourselves to take care of ourselves. If I can't benefit from it, I may know somebody on my block that can benefit from it. And uh, sometimes because of their circumstance, they may not be able to go to the meetings. So me as like a little advocate now at these meetings, I can say, oh, my mom can't benefit from this, but Sister Josie across the street can use it. Um, Sister Barbara, her her niece needs this program let me make sure that she gets the information so people in the neighborhood kind of saw that and gave me a lot of guidance in in going to different meetings in the neighborhood councilmember king said you know what i want to run for city council in the neighborhood i'm gonna need help so of course he looked to the kids in the community that he saw pretty frequently and said hey do you all want to help me and volunteer my campaign and naturally, a lot of us said, yes, we want to be involved. This is like the next logical step of the work that we're doing in the neighborhood. You can't kind of take care of a neighborhood and kind of remove politics from it. It all goes together in serving the neighborhood. So fast forward, he won. He said, well, Brian, you you know, you did a, a really good job on the campaign. You had a lot of young people volunteering. I like that you really stepped up. Do, do you want to work for the city council? Do you want to work with me in, in helping the neighborhood? And I said, of course. Um, I was still in college then, still getting my 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 degree, still working on maturing and becoming a, a young adult. Um, but I said, you know what? This is an opportunity to really step up, and it was good employment considering I didn't have my degree. So I said, yes, sign me up. I mean, why not? Um. So he signed me up. He said, well, we got to go to trainings, we got to learn the city council, and I said, sure. This is this is me. I love opportunities to sit in a room with smart people and learn have people with experience give me their feedback their wisdom and unfortunately in a lot of the different workshops and trainings I went to I was always the youngest person
0: Mm. and
2: they always assumed I was an intern which I always thought was strange because like you see a young black man most of the time I was dressed because that's how I grew up I grew up always being neat and they always treated me like I was an intern and they would always kind of scratch their head when they say, oh, you work here. You're not, a, you're not an intern. I said, no, I'm, I, I'm a staffer here, um, which is a good thing and, and sometimes not the greatest thing, but it shows you that we kind of got to be more in people's faces to kind of get treated differently. If I, if I didn't kind of step up and say, you know, I want to work there, how would the next young brother have handled those situations where they treat him like an intern or they don't give him that same kind of respect that maybe a a staffer with a little bit more work experience would have gotten. This was one of my first real jobs. Of course, I didn't treat it like it was my first job. I treated it like it was the last job, but I showed them that no matter the age, that level of respect should always be given. And and I always carry myself like that because that's what we should have. We shouldn't kind of let people walk on us, but re-educate them as to how we should be treated by them and then move forward together. So I ended up getting a lot of respect from some of the peers there by virtue of being the youngest person in the room, but sometimes being the most poised or the most calm in certain scenarios. Could you tell listeners, what does the city
0: council do?
2: So the city council is the legislative body in the city of New York, and it's a check to the mayor. So in the city council, the the body passes legislation that is then reviewed and signed into law by the mayor. If the mayor vetoes that bill, the city council as the legislative body has the power to overrule the mayor, but it's a body of 51 unique individuals from different corners of the the city of New York. But for the most part, the body is on the same page when it comes to passing common sense legislation. They also are able to appoint city agency representatives They're also able to oversee city agencies, and they're able to pass the city budget. The city budget portion is one of the biggest pieces because all of the municipal agencies are funded through it. Um, 95% of our community-based organizations are funded through it. And then a lot of the capital projects that you see happening throughout the city, whether it's school-based, cultural-based, or affordable housing in nature, is coming through that city council budget. So outside of physically passing laws, they put money where their mouth is to get stuff done in the city of New York. And the legislative body also has oversight of these city agencies.
0: What is the role of city council members, the city council membership?
2: So in particular, the individual city council member has a dedicated amount of funds that they allocate to different community-based organizations, city services, and different creative projects. Councilmember King specifically was able to fund a pre-K in the neighborhood, an early childhood education center. We were able to do a full renovation of the Dreiser Loop Auditorium in Co-op City. We were able to host the Fun in the Sun Community Engagement Day Parade and concert right on Gun Hill Road. The first parade like that on Gun Hill Road Marching to Vanda Field, where we were serenaded by Donnie McClurkin himself. One year we had J.J. Hairston. Sometimes we have um, Glacier Robinson or Colleen Davis. Um, but there's so many ways that the individual council member, by virtue of their persona and what they're interested in, can kind of shape and guide how communities get served. So the individual council member has the same kind of limitations, but you can kind of operate how you want and see fit to serve the people that you represent. So in our neighborhood, we end up having a lot of senior services. We have the largest naturally occurring retirement community of Co-op City. But then on this side of the world, we do have a lot of seniors and we fund a lot of the senior programs through the Regional Aid for Interim Needs or RAIN, as it's called. Um, So council members have a lot of kind of free reign as to how they serve and can be very creative with how they fund programs and actually solving different problems like graffiti removal or or doing um uh, buyback programs or or having workshops and town halls and and every council office does all of those things differently and that's the the good thing because certain neighborhoods by virtue of where they're physically located one council district has the bronx zoo so they get to do events at the bronx zoo Um, you have neighborhoods in queens that have different cultural institutions in our neighborhood we have mine builders we have thistle gardens We have um, a number of different cool locations where we get to do creative projects. And that's a good thing because that kind of highlights what's in the neighborhood. Some people have lived in this neighborhood their whole life and don't know where certain things are until they see that their councilman is doing an event there and it's free for the community. And now they get to go out and take advantage of this community space. Or they get to meet people that they otherwise wouldn't have met from different corners of the world. Or they get to host a town hall to disseminate information that they otherwise didn't know was available to them. So there's a number of ways that city council people are helpful um, and there's a number of ways that they can serve the populations that they were elected to represent.
0: We will return after a short break. And Brian, we know that you served as special assistant and are you currently now serving as budget director?
2: a mix of both by virtue of the the current circumstances um but for me that's that's a good thing because I've, I've been here before i've been in a position where i've had to kind of have creative solutions for unique problems um i can continue to review budget applications now i can review um historic um, allocations some groups may have questions on the contracting agency that they're dealing with i can still assist there um for me kind of wearing different hats while there and also having just physical experience being there and kind of knowing who to talk to to get stuff done has been a major blessing. And then while being the budget director, having intimate knowledge of how the city council allocates this funding, how the contracting agencies reach out to the organizations, how the mayor's office of contract services creates the individual contracts for the the community-based organizations. You kind of don't read about that in a book. You kind of have to be there and do the work to kind of get that knowledge. And it's been great having intimate knowledge and putting the time in and actually doing what it took to kind of be effective and efficient to get to this place now where I can kind of talk at great lengths about how the process is because I've been through it five times at this point now.
0: Describe for us the role your role as budget director. Because I think I understand that as special assistant, you're doing a little of everything, but what was, The role as budget director? What Define what you had to do as budget director.
2: So as budget director what ends up happening first thing I would host a budget workshop. So every January I would have all of the community-based organizations and anyone in the community willing to come come to a room, um, a public space in the neighborhood and I would walk through what the discretionary application process looked like and what the capital allocation process looked like. Um, The application is live from January 3rd to about February 20th, you apply online, you put in your organization's EIN number, you put in what service you plan on providing the neighborhood, and there's a a whole host of um, different uh, pieces of uh, documentation you have to submit. What I then have to do after the end of the deadline is review the applications that you either submitted your documentation in properly, that your purpose of funds is NEAT, um, and that your your service is unique to the district, that it may not be something that we already serve. Um, what ends up happening, though, is organizations that provided a service last year are reapplying for those same funds the following year. And the new programs are also kind of competing for that same fund, because most of the time the uh, the discretionary budget doesn't increase unless there's some need for it. When Hurricane Sandy happened, there was a major need for certain emergency service programs and community emergency response team programs. Um, um, For COVID now, this budget ended up being a lot of food, emergency food programs. So Food NYC, Fresh Direct, a lot of the groups that were bringing food and delivering them to the communities, of course, by virtue of how that dynamic played out, we need more money for masks. We need more money for gloves. We need more money for hand sanitizer. We need more money for fresh foods to deliver to folks that may be homebound or may be in need of emergency food services. Um, so, So the budget is normally in response to what the needs of the people are. And my role is to kind of knowing the district, what does the 12th district need? What services do we need to maintain and what services can we maybe modify for this council year? So in the next fiscal year, we can maybe restore them. Or, or give another program an opportunity to serve. Um, what we'd also do is listen to schools. Um, we do technology grants, um, capital renovations to physical structures, whether it be the auditorium, gymnasiums, playground space outside, um, STEM labs, hydroponics. Um, there are a number of ways that schools have programs that they either need or renovations that we're in need of and having a good relationship with the principals, the educators in the building and even the students in the building, because students definitely sometimes know what they need. We were able to fix the bathrooms of PS41, bring laptop carts to MS-181, um, do do our renovations to uh, Baychester Middle School's um, gymnasium. So there's a bunch of creative ways that we can bring laptop services and technology to schools and, and parks. We, we read it, Agnes Haywood Park on 216, I mean, but the budget. It gives you an opportunity to not only know the neighborhood but learn how initiatives get funded through downtown's city budget and that kind of went a long way by virtue of working from home and not really having the hearings like we had them and still being able to get the money to where it needed to be in this year's budget
0: does the needs of your community sometimes get overwhelming for you as someone who works with a city council does it sometimes stress you out you seem unflappable so I think <laughs> a segue to my next question what is the hardest part of of your work
2: um so I I'm for the most part it's not overwhelming um I feel like I was really built for this to be honest with you in going into these trainings and I feel like this is literally what I was supposed to do and that's why I'm here doing it um but in terms of maybe what stressed me out sometimes to be honest with you it's it's always three things going on at once So sometimes it's like, how do I continue to be the guy wearing the bow tie while also being Brian Malfour? Not saying that those are two different people, but let's say you get invited to a a birthday dinner for a friend and you know that you have a community board meeting where you have to bring a certain kind of information. Of course, I'm going to do the job first because that's what I was called to do. And also being communicative to my friends and letting them know, like, of course, I love you guys and I want to participate in the events. And. Sometimes you get invited on dates and you want to let the person know, of course, I'm respectful of your time and I appreciate you inviting me out, but this is what I'm doing now and it's going to kind of help my neighborhood beyond this. This meal is great, but if that information can get somebody a scholarship or that, that grant can get somebody a, 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 a money to start a business, the meal is good, but I feel like that might be a little bit more valuable in the long run and being realistic with people. Some people think you're just blowing them off. Not realizing like, oh, he's actually at a meeting making a presentation, or he's actually at a dinner and and he's learning about a a program or learning about a, an organization that provides a service that the neighborhood may benefit from. So it's like being me outside of work while also being the guy that's always at work sometimes isn't the easiest of things. Or sometimes when you get invited on a trip, the last time I got to go somewhere, my friend was getting married. So it was a blessing that I got to go. But outside of that, sometimes saying, wow, you know, I know I have these budget reports or something due or something's going on, going to Las Vegas is is fun and sounds exciting. But you know that the work is going to serve a a population of people that truly need it. And of course, somebody else can do it. But why leave it to somebody else when you know that I have the experience to get it done and can get it done efficiently and in the right way? Yes, there's times to let my hair down and kind of go and be social. But I know that when I'm at work, I'm at work. And when I'm not at work, I'm not at work. Um, so, but sometimes that's a balancing act, depending on, hey, you know, you just got invited to a, a TV screening. Those opportunities don't come up all the time. So, some things you kind of have to make a sacrifice on. Well, maybe I can leave this a little bit early to go to that. Or maybe I can take a day to go do A, B, or C. But that's life in general. Ask anybody, ask a doctor, ask a teacher. Things happen, and we kind of got to make adjustments. So I wouldn't say maybe stressful, but it's ongoing. It's never like, oh, for these three months, I'm chilling. Because it's never chilling. There's always something going on. There's some event. There's always some some fire to put out, which is not a bad thing sometimes, especially when they know that you can get it done.
0: So from special assistant to budget director, youth organizer, president, various roles, the the Bronx is not without its tensions between the police and residents. What have you seen in terms of indicators that there is, you know, I'll ask it this way. Have you seen reasons for hope in terms of community relations with the police and residents?
2: Oh, I sure have. Um, I grew up in the time where we had Ramali Graham. So in about 2011, I, I believe the young man lived in the neighborhood, was not far removed from the type of kids that I grew up with, was, was shot by an officer in his home. Those tensions of today are, are a lot different than what's being experienced now by virtue of everybody got a cell phone, everybody got cameras, It the information is right in your face. They have the camera of the officer kicking his door down, and there are definitely key pieces of information. But... We're, no, we're not new to injustice in this country. From the moment we got here, it was almost like a, a, from design, the way that we interact with enforcement. Um, I'm more so of the mindset, because I went to John Jay. A number of my peers went on to become officers, a couple of them state troopers. And of course, I still communicate with them. I actually went to a nice baby shower for one of my friends who was a state trooper. And he's a Latino man who, who still deals with the population that he grew up with. So I feel like when you kind of grow up with a certain style of person, you have a, a a different way of dealing with them fundamentally. What ends up happening now is some of the folks that are called to, to serve us come from a, a, a dynamic where they they have no cultural experience. There's no, there's no template for how they deal with us because this is their first encounter. So you'll notice that some officers are great with communities that they're in because it's a community not too dissimilar from theirs. And then some officers, unfortunately, for lack of better words, are trigger happy with how they deal with their communities or tense, or, or don't have that same kind of comfortability in the community. And, and what I do is I charge people to say, imagine, put yourself in their shoes. We have a program that we do in the Bronx Department Program called Connections, where the officers come in the room with the kids, the kids act candid, filter-free questions, real questions, hard questions. But then the officers put the kids in their shoes by doing role-playing. And then the kids now have a better sense of what the officer's mindset is. But then the officers get to see what our kids are thinking. Sometimes we think the kids aren't doing anything and they don't know what's going on. These kids are sharp. These kids are paying attention and they know how to code switch like nobody's business because they know how to treat their parents. They know how to act when they're at school. They know how to act around their friends. And it's like three different kids in the one body. But when it comes to law enforcement, we shouldn't have to change who we are for them, but they also shouldn't necessarily have to change for us. They definitely have to change how they treat us and respect us though. And and that's as a a system. Of course, there's gonna be individuals in law enforcement that are great. And I know personally a bunch of officers that are great, great community residents first, great community people first before their officers. Because of course, people forget that these officers are people. It's not the, the clothes that make them, it's them that make the uniform. When they take off that uniform, they go right back home to their families, to their neighborhoods. They sometimes have the same issues we have. So we can't kind of deal with them like they're gonna go off into the sky and, and they're not living in communities like ours. because That's unrealistic. Um, but some of the officers, of course, need to spend more time in certain communities, not just for showing face, but for kind of learning the dynamics of how people exist. In some places, things are different. If I see an officer in Chinatown, I'm more likely to see an officer that reflects the demographic that he's serving. Oftentimes, they not in neighborhoods like ours. Sometimes the officers don't reflect the people of the neighborhood. So I always ask people, if, if you're mad at how the, the officers are, are treating us, when are we going to become the officers and police ourselves? When I went to John Jay, quite a few kids that looked like me went on to become officers and sometimes they do get put on beats and sometimes they do get to serve communities of color but we got to ramp that number up if we're the the minority in the communities how come we're not minority in the people that serve the communities i say the same thing about fdny and the firefighters how come it's 79 percent white men and new york city is not 79 percent white men when do we say you know what instead of getting mad at the system we kind of dismantle it from the inside or change it from the inside. So they can be a true paradigm shift at how we get served by these, these groups. And with NYPD specifically, if you had more of us in leadership in NYPD, nine out of the 10 problems that we face in terms of community relations, how they arrest us, how they deal with us would disappear. Because we know how to deal with each other different than anybody else. In, in certain neighborhoods in Brooklyn, I'm not gonna say no names, but I saw some, some interaction between the officers and some people that were having a little get together. One of the officers, of course, was an officer with dreads and and by cultural virtue was able to have a different kind of interaction with the people he was serving. He wasn't policing these people. He was explaining to them why what they were doing may not have been the wisest thing to do and then also suggested the, the next logical step for them without any kind of extra, extraness that was necessary. And of course the people were not super happy, but there was a level of minimum respect that was given. And then there was a a level of respect returned. And I feel like sometimes NYPD misses that mark by virtue of the cultural disconnect between, and if not necessarily the cultural disconnect, just the social disconnect in how they wanna deal with us. I saw another article about how NYPD responded in another part of Brooklyn, where the demographic was a little different. And I noticed that the the attitudes and the kind of activities weren't too far off, but the response was totally different. Even the the gear and the riot gear wasn't present at this other part of Brooklyn. So these things don't happen because uh, 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 somebody just missed it's by design on how they respond to certain demographics. So if, if one population can get a, a, a minimum level of respect, I would argue that the other demographic is entitled to that same level of service and, and response, just in an effort, a, 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 an effort to be fair and, and consistent in service, if you get what I'm saying. And, and of course, NYPD is only gonna change the more we, we put pressure on them to kind of get it right for us. But, and there's a way of doing that where they don't feel like they're threatened or or we're serving disrespect, but we're trying to uh, achieve a, a certain minimum threshold of understanding and accountability from both parties.
0: And Brian, excellent points. But I can't let you go without highlighting what I've uncovered during our discussion. It almost seems to me it seems to me that you are prepared for this moment. Could you share with listeners, we've probably made the announcement already, but could you share with listeners your plan and your vision and your aspirations at this present moment?
2: Um, so it is public, public information. Um, I have uh, opened a committee um, exploring the opportunity to be the next New York City Council member of the 12th District. Um, I'm looking to bring some of the experiences that I've had with some of the vision that I have to, to some of the things in the neighborhood while representing at City Hall. And I'm also looking to kind of give more people in the neighborhood access to what the city council has to offer in terms of just transparency, connection, and, and just opportunities to get stuff done. I want people in the neighborhood to feel like they have a, a, a voice in the neighborhood and, and the voice is through a brother that they already know. A face that's a little bit more familiar, uh, 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 a template that they are already familiar with, but also has some nuances to it and some some fresh energy to it. I want people to really be excited because in some places elections don't happen and they're neat. I want people in this neighborhood to feel like this is the way it was supposed to be and they felt like they had a, a seat at the table, like they were involved and a part of it. Of course, sometimes that's not necessarily how it plays out, but the people decide who their representative is. The people that registered to vote, that, that came to this country and became citizens and are now involved and ingrained in the community will pick who they want to be their leader and who they want to work with to get stuff done. I'm praying that the people of this neighborhood feel that I'm not only qualified but ready and and they feel like they can work with me to do what they need me to do in the neighborhood, but that I also have the capacity and the experience to get the things done that they need me to get done to bring more increased services to the neighborhood. I'm praying that the people of this neighborhood not only remember me for something I've done positive in the neighborhood, but also feel like they can still chat to me when they need to chat to me. So if something's going wrong, I can correct it and get it right. And I feel like that kind of dialogue is necessary with an elected official, because it it helps. the the It makes the circumstance, uh, uh a lot smoother. It makes the transition a lot smoother, and people are actually appreciative now, of who they elected, because they now have access to that person, and they're they they're knowing of the person's ability to get things done.
0: That's awesome, man. And I wish you the best of luck. Oh, thank you. It goes without saying, I've spoken to a number of millennials and not only in light of your, what you've indicated about the importance of letting your voice be heard, but many millennials have expressed some disillusionment with the voting process What could you say to young people who don't believe the voting is important or their vote matters? What would you say to young people who feel disillusioned by politics?
2: So specifically in the Bronx, about three years ago, there was a young man in a neighborhood not too different from ours that ran in an assembly race. And this young man won by one vote. And and I say to people, don't think that that one vote doesn't matter because literally that man was one vote away from not being the representative of that community. And then outside of that, don't think that not participating is not being observed, because to people outside of the neighborhood, they may be able to take advantage of that. They may be able to capitalize on our non-activity in an election to make themselves active in the community if we want something to be a certain way we kind of got to step up all the time and I know it it might be uh frustrating to have to be so consistent but imagine if you don't pay your bills one month (laughs) you kind of got to treat voting like your bills treat it like the thing you got to do every time it comes up whether you you appreciate the the level of your vote or not that makes an impact into what's going on. And it, it kind of helps us whether people realize it or not kind of stay united in the community. Uh, one thing I like about Corp City is that they more times than not are always the highest voting block in the borough of the Bronx, outside of Riverdale. And people always say, well, look at Riverdale. Riverdale always gets A, B, and C. You can't kind of look at Riverdale like that because guess what? People pay attention to people who participate So if you have a community that's always engaged, that's always participating, they're always electing people, they're going to get a special attention every single time because they know if they're not getting no special attention, something got to change. And they know where to change it. In in some communities, unfortunately, they feel like things go wrong, they'll complain, but that they don't want to bring the power to where they have it. Not saying that voting is the only way to have community power, but it's definitely one of the ways to show it to people that aren't in the neighborhood. If I'm in Brooklyn and I'm like, hmm, I wonder what's going on in the Bronx. If I'm a, I'm a developer, do I say, oh, I'm gonna go develop in the Bronx? Depending on the neighborhood, I may not because I know the people there have a certain uh, political power that I can't kind of tap into now. But in some communities, that's not the case. People aren't on the same page. And those are some of the, the places that get walked over because they know that the community is not all there politically. So I I tell the people that may seem, oh, why am I gonna vote? My vote don't count. At the federal level, of course, there's an electoral college. At the local level, that's not the case. At the local level, your vote goes directly to the person and that's a done deal. So don't be disillusioned by what's happening at the federal level and feel like your vote doesn't count because at the local level, it's literally one vote that can change an election, whether people realize that or not.
0: That's awesome, man. And almost Mm -hmm. finally, there's a young person who is looking for an opportunity to effect change and may not have had someone who poured into you like Mr. King did. What could you say to that young person in terms of uh, the importance of activism, volunteering, uh, getting engaged? What would you say to a young person who is looking to find their purpose?
2: First thing, pray, cause to be honest with you, sometimes you don't wake up where you where you where you need to be, but circumstances will bring you there. so so always in anything, pray because sometimes you don't have it all mapped out. Of course, I didn't have this all mapped out, but this is where I'm at now, and this is what I'm doing now. and and unfortunately, some of us may not have mentors, but some of us through experiences have to become those mentors for tomorrow. I couldn't tell you if 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 Marcus Garvey had a had a mentor but Marcus Garvey has inspired millions. I couldn't tell you if if uh Malcolm X had a mentor of course we know he did but imagine if that's not the story that's told the person becomes the mentor that they're looking for the world to be. So sometimes you got to look in yourself as to what kind of energy you want to give off. And sometimes it's not going to be uh, an individual mentor, it's going to be a collective or it's going to be a body of people that you, you serve with or that you work with that helps. But sometimes we got to step up and, and just take a, a good hard look in the mirror and see, well, what do we want to see in this world? What do we want to see of ourselves? That self motivation sometimes goes a long way, even after the mentor has taught you everything that they got and you still got to keep going. Because, of course, you're not going where they went, you're heading somewhere different by virtue of you being a different person. So sometimes they can only give you as much as they have. And if you don't have one, sometimes you just gotta make it up as you go along and pray that the Lord is guiding you and giving you as much wisdom as you can accept. Because sometimes it's, it's, not, it's not easy. And I know that firsthand going through this, this life, this journey. And sometimes the mentor, by virtue of them doing it before you, may only get but so far. And you kinda gotta make it up as you get past whatever that point is. And that's okay, because hopefully the tools that they gave you make you better. And if they didn't give you no tools or you didn't get no tools from nobody, make your own tools. Pray for them and the Lord will provide. I can tell you a ton of people out there probably don't have mentors, but they still made it to wherever they were supposed to make it to and did what they were supposed to do. And things will get done. Sometimes you're not gonna be 100, but I thank God for the 85. (laughs) I thank God for the 75 because it's better than zero and it's better than doubting myself the whole time. Good points.
0: And and finally, what can we do for young people, many of whom you've identified, who have things to say that need to be heard? You've mentioned the meetings where they've spoken candidly to police officers, but I'm sure you've come across scores of young people who have important things not only to say, but important things to offer as well. How can we as adults foster a a generation of young people who will live up to their truest potential? What can we as a society do to uh, encourage that?
2: So to be honest with you, using platforms like yours, using platforms that are similar, using the platforms that they're already on, and giving them more guidance to that voice. Just like I mentioned before, the kids on TikTok sometimes we may not even have to do it. They'll be creative enough in themselves to give themselves the platform that they need to kind of get their point across. Of course, there's ways that we can facilitate it, like with the officers. TikTok is not going to get NYPD to sit in a room with some kids, but we collectively have enough resources amongst ourselves that our kids shouldn't be needing of anything, whether it's needing of a meeting with NYPD or learning about the parks department or meeting their local representatives. We collectively have all of the things that communities benefit from so there's no reason why our kids sometimes don't have safe spaces that have conversations of course because of the pandemic things are a little bit different but once this thing is over you're going to see more people kind of stepping up when they can where they can and kids actually taking advantage of some of the programs outside of the school building because sometimes schools aren't those community centers sometimes those churches are the community centers sometimes the community centers are the community centers And we we just got to make sure that whatever structure is there, we can kind of support it more and then also guide the kids to it. Because some kids are not going to get to go to every meeting, but if it's online or we make creative ways to kind of draw their attention to it, we can kind of give them the structure they need to be successful or at least feel connected to whatever's going on and have their voices heard. There's always a way. Where there's a will, there's a way. And and just because there's no money in certain programs doesn't mean that the, the program doesn't continue serving. Because just because there's no funding don't mean the service stop. The kids are still going to need stuff. We collectively can get it done. Even if we got to start small and do a little fish fry or, or sell a couple of burgers or a couple of glizzy, you know, we can make it work amongst ourselves to still get what we need for our people. Because nobody's going to come save us. If we don't get our kids on a certain level, we can't get mad when they don't get to a certain level. We gotta do what we gotta do for us, for our people, so that our people can be successful, so that their people can be successful, and their kids after them. Nobody gonna save us. We gotta save ourselves, and we gotta work together to get stuff done.
0: Brian Melford, you're well-rounded. Please tell listeners your hobbies, interests, and ways to follow you on social media.
2: Um, so I heard hobbies first. Sort of believe it or not, people. Um, I am the president of the New York Yo-Yo Club and I am a former yo-yo champion. Um, Outside of all the the cool things I was able to mention, um, I also got to go to Japan and compete in the world's yo-yo contest. So sometimes the the innocent hobby, the the little quirky thing that the kids do, you never know, it might take them around the world. For me, it was a yo-yo. My father used to tell me about spinning gig in Jamaica. It just so happens that I I picked up a yo-yo as an 18 year old filling out college applications. And I got good and shot a couple of videos and people took an interest and a liking to me. I got sponsored and got to got to do some cool things. I got to do a performance in Seattle, got to do a show in California, got to do a competition in, in Orlando. But having that support system that not just jeers me, oh, you're playing with yo-yo, you're too big to play yo-yo. Oh, that, that yo-yo thing looks cool. Um, What do you need? You want to shoot a camera? You want to take pictures? You want to make your own? having a support system. And my dad is, is one of those supporters. He said, oh, the yo-yo thing might seem childish to me, but I'm still going to support you because you know what you can do with it. And next, you know, I'm in another country spinning, spinning yo-yo, people taking pictures of me. I'm talking to news cameras out there. And then when I came back, I got to talk to New York One. Little things like that. You might have somebody that's good with piano, good with violin. You might have someone that can do marble. You might have somebody that can sew, crochet, make clothes. There's a million ways that young people can be successful in unique things. I saw a young lady that did embroidery. I couldn't tell you the last time I seen somebody using a sewing kit or a sewing machine. But this young lady went on YouTube, taught herself how to do it, and now she got her own business now. She may be the next big Anna Winter or the big uh, Vera Wang. But if we don't make the the opportunities of success and kind of support her with the love and support she needs, she might not make it. So we got to be more supportive of the unique creatives that are in our, our neighborhood. Um, There's a young brother in our neighborhood that I love to support. His name is Muggsy McFly. And this guy actually made some shoes that I have right here. And you think people in our neighborhood are making shoes. This young brother made shoes, or shoes that look good. It looked like the $800 shoes that people are walking around wearing and he lives right here in the Northeast Bronx. We got to support each other whether we're black, whether we're white, whether we're Latino, whether we're Asian as long as we know it's people like us from a different uh, from, the, from the community, we got to support it. And if it's something positive, why not support it? Um, For me, if you guys want to follow me, please check me out on Instagram at Brian Melford, B R I A N M E L F O R D. Um, I also have a Facebook, add me on Facebook, Brian Melford there also. Um, and and just look at some of the cool things I've been able to do. We had a big back to school rally last year um, where we had A Boogie with a hoodie and we had Kyrie Irvin. Imagine you're a kid in the Bronx, you sing A Boogie songs, you see the music videos, and then he's there in your backyard at Vanda High School giving out backpacks. That's inspiring. Because this young man from the Bronx is making millions of dollars and saw it fit to come back and, and spend time with kids from his borough. And then oh Kyrie Irving, who a lot of people don't know, spent some time in the Bronx, was signing basketballs for kids right in the community. That's the type of stuff that I want to continue doing in the neighborhood. And I want kids to see, like, I can do that. I want to grow up one day and be the guy that brings celebrities to empower my neighborhood, inspire my neighborhood, and give back to my neighborhood. Why not? I don't got to be a millionaire to do it. You just got to have the your heart in the right place and the will to do it and the energy to get it done.
0: It's awesome, man. And Brian, if you are looking for volunteers or sponsors, could you let listeners know that as well? I know so, you're humble to a fault, but if you do, please let us
2: know. <laughs> um, If folks uh, click the link in my bio, that's a, a way that they can contribute to my campaign um volunteers just dm me um i also have a google form for volunteers um even outside of the campaign just stay connected um sometimes i get invited things in the neighborhood and of course i can't make everything so i can be a a wealth of of knowledge and a resource for people that kind of want to know oh where are pantries in the neighborhood or where are there's activities going on or farmers markets and i could gladly share that information because it doesn't help me to keep all of the information to myself. It only helps if I can get it and give it to the people that we benefit from it. That's how we, we we keep each other sane and we keep each other involved and engaged being each other's brothers and sister keeper.
0: Ryan Melford, you're an inspiration. Thanks again for being a guest on the water word podcast. We look forward to what's to come and we wish you all the best. Thanks again for the nuggets, the many gems you shared with listeners again and thanks for being an inspiration.
2: Thank you, thank you, thank you for considering me an inspiration, for giving me this platform, for for letting me chat to you for a good chunk of time, and I pray that anyone that listens to this, whether you're you're having a great time or a not so great time, just pray through it and give God thanks you're still here, because so many people didn't make it through the pandemic, and and we got to sometimes take a, a second to give God thanks for what we have, and if we don't have it, it's not the end of the world because we still here without it. Um, I'm always in a place of gratefulness because, of course, I could have been anywhere. I could have been in any kind of situation, but I'm here by the grace of God. So I'm always giving God thanks for, for what I do have in it. If I have a million dollars, great. If I don't have a million dollars, I can bless somebody with a piece of knowledge that can help them get a million dollars. That's how it's supposed to be.
0: Blessing, sir, and thanks again, man. And we'll be in touch and we wish you all the best.
2: Thank you, thank you, thank you. Stay blessed.
3: Who are you gonna be? And if you'll notice, I'm not asking what are you gonna do, but who are you gonna be? I'm asking you about how you plan to live your life every day. How are you gonna respond when you don't get that job you had your heart set on? For all of you who are gonna be teachers, what are you gonna do if the students in your class next year just don't respond to your lessons. For all of you going into business, how will you react when your boss gives you a goal that feels way too high? See, these are the moments that define us. Not the day you get the promotion, not the day you win Teacher of the Year, but the times that force you to claw and scratch and fight just to get through the day. The moments when you get knocked down and you're wondering whether it's even worth it to get back up. See, those are the times when you've got to ask yourself, who am I going to be? And I want to be clear, this isn't just some vague platitude about building character. In recent years, we've actually been seeing a growing body of research that shows that skills like resilience and conscientiousness can be just as important to your success as your test scores or even your IQ. For instance, West Point cadets who scored high on things like grit and determination were more likely to complete basic training than those who ranked high on things like class rank, SAT scores, and physical fitness. So what we're seeing is that if you're willing to dig deep, if you're willing to pick yourself up when you fall, if you're willing to work and work until your weaknesses become your strengths, Then you'll develop a set of skills that you can mold and apply to any situation you encounter, any job you might have, any crisis you might confront. But you gotta make that choice. And let me just share just a little secret before I end. As someone who has hired and managed hundreds of young people over the course of my career, whether it was during my time as a lawyer, as an administrator, as a university, a nonprofit manager, even now as first lady, I have never once asked someone I was interviewing to explain a test score or a grade in a class. Never. I have never once made a hire just because someone went to an Ivy League school instead of a state school. Never. What I have looked for is what kind of person you are. Are you a hard worker? Are you reliable? Are you open to other viewpoints? Have you stepped outside of your own self-interest to serve others? Have you found a way to serve our country, whether in uniform or in your community? Again and again, I have seen that those are the qualities that I want on my team because those are the qualities that move our businesses and schools and our entire country forward. And, and, and just understand this, those are the qualities that you all already embody. They're the values you learned from your parents, from the communities you grew up in. And today, more than ever before, that's what the world needs.